He was dressed in khaki trousers and a khaki shirt, which, while admittedly is designed to blend in, not in civilian Germany. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we're looking at our first Frenchman of Series 5, which is Sergeant Jacques Alexis Edouard Marie Mouhot, who was in the SAS, which we've covered a couple of times before. We've had we a, have. We have a few SAS uh, escapes, but this is, uh, he was a parachutist mm-hmm. and serving in the Special Air Service Brigade. Slightly older chap, actually. Born in Cherbourg, 1911, so we're looking 1942, his particular capture, so 31. But it did say that he was a ski salesman pre-war, so one would expect he was probably fairly fit and athletic up in the mountains, so it would potentially make sense for him to be in a, an elite parachute unit, I would have thought. I, I'd have thought so. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by what a ski salesman is you know do you have door-to-door ski salesmen or i kind of imagine somebody who was actually probably in some sort of chalet at ski season mm. and just sold his wares then and whatever he did in the rest of it i mean it doesn't say it just says pre-war ski salesman and obviously his address is the fighting french units in in london at the time so um i did actually manage to dig up some stuff on him from before the war not much but he, he basically left for the uk via north africa okay. in january of 1941 he was obviously old enough to serve, but he spent a good year, a year and a half under occupation rules before he left. And he was captured on Crete in June 1942. Now, he's not a man of very many words when it comes to his report. So there was a fair bit of background that I needed to dig up. Because as he says, he says, in June 1942, while serving with the Special Air Service, I was sent on a special mission to Crete. After we had completed our task, we made our way to the south side of the island, and from then on he goes into his capture. So he left out why he was there. Mm. And I thought, well, we need to have a look at this, because we've covered Crete on a number of other occasions, mostly the German invasion of Crete. Mm -hmm. But that was, of course, May 1941. So this is a year after the Germans have already been there. So SAS is going to be an interesting raid, Mm. for sure. So I was looking for what this was going to be, and it basically, it came under the name of Operation Albumen. Bit of a word for Albumen. Okay. Not something I'd come across before. Apparently it was a joint operation between the islands of Crete and airfields in Libya. Right. And what it appeared had happened is at that time of the war, the Germans had obviously established a big base on Crete. And at the time, Rommel's Africa Corps was trying to advance on the Nile Delta. And they needed supplying. And a lot of the supply routes came through Crete and Libya. Okay. So that was kind of a big problem for the Allies. So there was a big meeting in Cairo. And they decided to basically, over a period of about a week and a half, run effectively simultaneous attacks on all of the German airfields in Libya and all of the German airfields on Crete to basically knock out the supply lines and the aeroplanes that were there to try and disrupt the logistics that were going to the Africa Corps. Makes sense. Does certainly make sense. Of course, it was also being used for a lot of reconnaissance of all the convoys that were going up and down the Mediterranean. So it'd be very useful to limit the German aerial power And that meant that it needed to be sabotage that had to be carried out. And the idea was that there was going to be three SBS units and one SAS unit that were allocated the islands on Crete. Now, he was part of the SAS unit. 
And looking up the plan of attack for them, they had been allocated the airfield at Heraklion. So if anyone's been on holiday to Crete, you would have landed at that airport. Now, it's very different to as it was then. Back then it was rather dusty and it just really had tents. But originally the idea was to hit that on the night of the 7th and 8th of June alongside local resistance fighters who were going to guide them to the base. Now the problem is it kind of went wrong from the start. The SAS unit was supposed to be brought ashore on inflatable dinghies from a submarine. Now, for various reasons, the submarine was several days late leaving, which meant they didn't actually leave until three days after they were supposed to have already attacked the airfield. They also ended up arriving at basically at dawn on the beach, and they got the wrong beach. So they were heading for a place called, and I apologise to anybody who knows this, Karatos, and they actually ended up in Malia, which was about 30 kilometres away, in daylight which is not a good time to be putting ashore in a boat. So they basically had to hold up for starters during the day and then march at night and try and meet up with their resistance friends. It wasn't until the 12th and 13th of June that they were actually to look at attacking the airfield, but they arrived at the airfield and it was really busy because the Germans were using it a lot. So they had to put it off for yet another night, which happened to correspond with the RAF bombing that airfield at the same time. So they were basically trying to sabotage the airfield whilst their colleagues in the Royal Air Force were bombing that same airfield. So the result of which was actually that they managed to destroy 20 individual German aircraft off their own backs, whilst the bombing, whilst it disrupted the runways, destroyed a further five. So it was generally seen as a fairly successful raid. The Germans, as we've seen before, particularly on Crete, had various reprisals for the locals. So the very next day, unknown to the SAS, they rounded up 50 inhabitants of Heraklion and murdered them in retaliation for the raid on the airfield. But it did knock the airfield out for some considerable time. But unfortunately for the SAS group, the local resistance fighters, there was potentially a leak somewhere and that their route south to their rendezvous was known then to the Germans because going back to the report, he says... They obviously completed the task, made their way to the south side of the island. When they were about 10 kilometres from the rendezvous, they stopped to rest for the night. And he took some rest whilst some people went off to reconnoitre from the group. But he was suddenly roused to be told that armed personnel were approaching on all sides. And they were found immediately that they were effectively encircled. Whilst they opened fire to protect themselves, they were soon overcome. So he was captured almost a week after having landed on the island, but due to a leak from the resistance, which is not mentioned in the report, but it is mentioned in the research. So so he's now a captive. It's important to state, actually, at this point, that this is June 1942. So this is several months before the commando order came in. I was going to ask. Yeah, and of course we've covered the commando order on other things, which would basically meant that they wouldn't have been captured for very long before mm. being summarily executed without trial. It didn't come in until October. So the moment they are under the protection of being prisoners of war, which fortunately for him, as we see, he's taken away from all of this and he's basically into a prisoner camp before this comes in. So he goes on to say, he said, that same day we were sent to Candia and we stopped several times on the way at various military camps, but were interrogated and on no occasion did they give more than name and unit. We all had our pay books with us and those were taken away. I think we came across that with some of the SAS before and they were then put into civilian clothes. So mm-hmm. that normally would have been a big warning flag, but mm-hmm. at least, as I say, no commando order. So hopefully safe. Candia, we were put into solitary confinement for two or three weeks. During this time, we were continually interrogated, but we were very reasonably treated and given sufficient to eat and drink. At the end of this period, we were told we were to go to Germany and we were being sent to Dulagluft, stopping first at a prisoner of war camp somewhere in the south of Italy and continuing thence by train to Rome and Frankfurt. Our journey took three to four 
days. So that's not bad mm -hmm. to get up into Germany. At Dulaglyph, we were again put into solitary confinement. I was interrogated on several occasions by officers, and for the first week or two, a German parachutist frequently came into my room and sat with me. He always talked in a friendly manner and tried to draw me to talk of my own unit and its activities. He told me a certain amount about the organisation of German parachute units and endeavoured to get me to compare notes. Cunning, that one. Mm. At other times I was questioned as to the means of our arrival in Crete, our proposed method of departure and the source of explosives we used. I did not give any information away. During this time we were given very little to eat. We had two meals a day, one about midday consisting of a watery soup and two or three potatoes. The other, in the early evening, was usually just two or three small pieces of bread smeared with a little of ersatz butter. No mention of the coffee, No, but ersatz butter... The mind boggles. Yes, I don't think we want to know what Ersatz. I don't think we'll try that. So yes, he now finds himself in Dulagluf. Now, actually, that in and of itself is quite interesting because Dulagluf was, of course, an air force transit camp. It was holding camp, and of course, the SAS are an army regiment. Yes, and they were unlikely to have known that he was a parachutist within the army regiment. Mm. And they found him on the ground. He did. Yeah. So and he came ashore by rubber boat as well. So. Yeah. It's interesting he ended up in Dulag Luft. The only logical explanation I can immediately come up with is, of, of course, at this time, very little was known by the Germans about the SAS. Rommel famously referred to Sterling as the Phantom Major, and they were desperate to find out more information on oh, course, who the yes. SAS were. And I'm wondering if they were maybe sent to Dulag Luft for its interrogation Mm. skills mm. to try and get more information out of this collection. Actually you're right captured. because really Dulagluf was the up and coming place wasn't it for mm -hmm. interrogating people because there was so little infrastructure set in before mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. would make good sense. Mm -hmm. And of course it was in Dulagluf where he was to make his first escape attempt. Mm. He was to make several Yes, but he was. He didn't hang around. So, they were put into solitary confinement, and while in there, Muho worked out that while the cells were barred, he was able to get at least part of his body through the cell bars, which he thought might offer him a reasonable route of escape. Now, I get the impression that while he may not be a man of many words, he was a very meticulous, methodical man. Yeah, that comes across. Yeah, because he quite clearly describes the lay of the land immediately outside the cell and of course the camp and considered it very escapable. His description is outside our cell windows was a concrete path which was patrolled at 1900 hours and thereafter at irregular intervals of about five hours. So you've got a five hour window in which there's no sentry outside. Yeah. In front of this path was a small stream and beyond that a field and trees. So he's actually in a cell on the perimeter of the camp. But there's no sentry. So he says, In front of this path was a small stream and beyond that a field and trees. The rest was open country. In the field to the left of my cell was a guard and a raised platform. There was a searchlight here, but it was never used unless occasion demanded. There's not even a wire around the outside of this perimeter. That really surprises me. Excellent. Yeah. They must have thought that the huts were pretty secure. Yeah. No wonder he thought this was quite an escapable cell. So on a prearranged day with Commandant Berger, they had agreed to try and escape. So after the guard had made his rounds at 1900 hours, Muho was to wait about two and a half hours and then climb out of the small window across the streaming field and wait beyond the trees for Berger, who was to follow about half an hour later. Now Muho managed to do all of that and actually got to the line of trees without being spotted. Now it wasn't without its challenges because he said he had great difficulty in getting out of the window and had to strip completely in order to get his body through. He in effect had to tie his clothes into a bundle, tie that to the bars and then once he was out undo the bundle of clothes and then get redressed and then cross the field again. 
So having got to the line of trees, he waited for Berger for well over an hour, but Berger didn't turn up. Now, this is where it gets quite risky, <laughs> in my opinion, because he then went back to the cells and tapped gently at Berger's window several times, but got no response. Now, Miho was reluctant to say anything, and he states, I dare not speak for fear of being overheard, which I think is probably wise. And I thought it was possible that he hadn't been able to get through the window as he was a large man. Now, if Miho is describing someone else as a large man, and he's just said that he had great difficulty at getting through, it would make sense. So he therefore went back to the trees, waited for another hour, and as Berger didn't turn up, he decided to make off by himself. Now, he wasn't particularly well prepared because he didn't have any food maps or money on him, and he was dressed in khaki trousers and a khaki shirt, which, while admittedly is designed to blend in... In the desert, or on the islands of Crete, at yeah. least, yes. Not in... Not, not in civilian Germany. Correct. So, setting off on foot, and we're talking about round about midnight mm -hmm. at this point, so setting off on foot, he spent all of that night and the next day walking in a southerly direction. But around dusk the following day, he decided to try and hide, but before he found a place to do so, he was spotted by a forest guard, who took him to a nearby police station. And the following day, he was then returned back to Dulag Luft. And although he was asked how he escaped, he didn't tell his interrogators anything. So the following day, Berge and Muho were then sent on to Oflag 10C at Lubeck. And there's no comment in the report on what happened to Berge. So he was mm. reunited with them. So they must have discussed it. Yeah, they must have discussed it, but there's no comment on what happened. So I can only assume that either he was correct in his assumption that Berge hadn't got through, or he just didn't want to reveal what Berge had said to him as to why he didn't go with him. So having arrived in Lubeck, although they were both French, they were the only British personnel there. And what I mean by that is they were serving in British units. So there were Polish, French and Belgian personnel there. So there were other Frenchmen there. And he also states there was one Russian who was the son of Joseph Stalin. Ah, yes. So although when he returned to Dula Luft, he wasn't particularly in prison, he was only held for another day before being sent to Lubeck. Once he arrived in Lubeck, he was sentenced to another two weeks in Sulawotri, but only served five days after which he was released. Now, about three months after that escape took place, he was to make a second escape attempt, this time from Lubeck. So we're talking about October 42 by this stage. Yeah. So as a sergeant, he of course had to do work. And so he had volunteered to go with a working party, which was sent each day to a railway line siding to load and unload potatoes for the camps. This party typically consisted of four Frenchmen, four Poles and two guards. So after he'd been doing this work regularly for some time, he and another Frenchman had decided to escape. They'd started making preparations for clothes and to do this they used their bed covers to make trousers. Muho had also made a waistcoat out of black material while his colleague had obtained a similar garment in leather. And they also had no difficulty in obtaining needles and thread in order to repair their existing clothes. So they were able to pull together a fairly decent disguise that wasn't immediately obviously military. And far removed from the leopard skin underwear that we came across a couple of series Indeed, ago. Indeed, yes. That's um, very not military issue. Yes, no, exactly. However, they did have to wear army boots. Well, okay. But that's fairly standard. Yes. So Muho says that the greatest difficulty they faced was to get past the guard at the gate. Now, in order to do that... It was the custom for all working parties to be examined as they passed through and quite frequently they were made to unbutton jackets and that sort of stuff to make sure they weren't wearing civilian clothing underneath their military uniform. 
However, sometimes the guard was lax and let them pass through without any trouble. And the day that they chose to escape, they were fortunate enough to get through without examination. So they had to pull in a little bit of luck there, yeah. but yeah. they've managed to pull it off. Now, they had told a poll and two of the French colleagues on the working party of their intentions. And after they'd been working for some time, they motioned to their friends that they were about to go. So in order to escape, they climbed under a wagon of, of a goods train and were completely hidden from view by another train on the next track. And using that cover, they managed to get out of their army uniform and then ran out of the station yard. Now, nearby, we saw two bicycles, which we mounted. We have bicycle theft. What a shock. Bicycle theft. It's been a while. Far too long, in my opinion. Yes. However, rather strangely, they were to treat this golden opportunity with wanton abandon because they were to only cycle for 10 kilometres. Waste. And then abandon the bicycles. And after resting for a short time, continued on foot to Hamburg. Let me put it this way. This is not a decision I would take. No, we've seen in many escapes that the best opportunity to cover distance is train or bicycle. With a lot less questions asked if you go by bike. Yeah. Yeah. So, having arrived in Hamburg, his colleague who spoke German and had some money with him bought two tickets to Frankfurt, and they therefore boarded the express train, which arrived shortly afterwards. However, while they were on the train, a ticket collector came into their carriage and asked to see their tickets. While the tickets were, of course, legitimate and they showed them to him, Muho then got up and tried to walk towards the corridor. At this, the inspector stopped him and asked to then see his papers. Now, Muho did make a pretense of searching for them, looking in one pocket and then another. While he was doing this, his colleague league managed to slip into the corridor and made off in the other direction and he even goes so far as to say this was the last time i saw of him although later one of the guards told me he'd been arrested and shot oh yes however muho was in not much less hot water because one of the officers at lubeck had forged some papers for him which stated that he was being sent from hamburg to frankfurt for work however by his own admission they were pretty badly done and the inspector realized they were not genuine immediately as soon as he saw them he was therefore arrested by a gendarme on the spot upon recapture he was taken to a military prison and was kept there for three days he had admitted immediately that he was an escaper now he claims this was because he realized it was useless to pretend otherwise but there is a certain degree of security and just fessing up yeah yeah from there he was then sent to a temporary holding camp and this time he was only confined to cells for a few days and then was allowed to return to the main camp and about a month after that he was then transferred back to lubeck where he was sentenced to a further 15 days solitary confinement during which time he had only bread and water with a bowl of soup every other day so we're now back in lubeck and in February of the following year, 1943, he was to make his third escape attempt. So since his return, he had not been allowed to volunteer for any working parties, which is possibly a smart move by the guards here. I can see that. He's got previous. Yeah, he does a little bit. However, several of the guards who were there during his first spell, prior to his previous escape, had been changed and so he wasn't known to them. And he'd also managed to persuade one of the French sergeants in charge of a party detailed to peel potatoes to let him and his friend Grandemange, a private in another regiment, to attach themselves to the potato peeling party. So having managed to get himself attached to this working party, they then went about preparing another escape kit. And I have to say, it's a pretty good escape kit he pulls together here. Mm -hmm. So they managed to obtain a pair of workmen's dark overalls, which were then worn underneath their uniforms. They'd also each made for themselves a cap made out of bed covers. And they also had some biscuits, chocolate and sugar set aside. A French officer in the camp who knew of their intention to escape called de Rothschild had given them 300 marks in Lagergeld and one of the other comrades who worked outside the camp had then changed that into actual real rifle 
Reich marks. Wow. So they had 150 Reich marks on them as well. That's good. He had also managed to obtain a German map of the district from one of the guards in exchange for chocolate and cigarettes. And he'd also made himself a compass. So his escape kit consists of map, compass, food, clothes, and money. So the only thing he's actually missing here is papers. Yeah. But that's still a really good escape kit to pull together, given he must have been under quite close watch after his previous efforts. Yeah. So again, the working party that he was attached to consisted of eight men and one guard. And in order to get around the security, he had arranged with the sergeant in charge that the party should go out to work as usual at 0800 hours, but that when they returned in the afternoon about 1300 hours, two of them should go sick. We were then to write our names on the list and go out in their place. In this way, it seemed probable that my name would not be noticed by the German guard and everything worked according to plan. And we went to the German side of the camp to the room allotted for this work. So after they'd been working for some time, he told Grandemange that he was going to the lavatory and that if the guard didn't pass any comment, he was to follow suit as quickly as possible. This then happened and they took off their uniforms and hid them behind the toilet. So they were then working in the German side of the camp and at this time it was completely deserted. So they walked quickly towards a garage and there they saw a large wine bottle, which he states was large enough to hold 30 litres, which was fitted into a basket. So I think it's one of those really huge serving... Put on your back, sort of pour it over your shoulder thing. So they each took hold of one of the handles and walked across the camp. So again, assimilating themselves into the immediate vicinity, they look like they're supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. By this we're talking about 1800 hours so six o'clock in the evening and they walked out of the camp carrying this bottle and into a small road after they'd gone about three kilometers they dropped the basket and hid in a wood however while there they heard that the alert had gone off and realized that their absence had been noticed and although they remained hidden for another two hours they didn't see any of the search parties so they've kind of got away with it but they haven't got far before their absence has been spotted Nonetheless, going on foot, they went through Hamburg, Bremen, and then on to Osnabrück. And they travelled during the night and in the early mornings, hiding up during the rest of the day. It's uh, interesting they're actually heading west. Yeah. I mean, French national, but it's an interesting route. It's not heading towards Switzerland. It's not hold- heading towards the northern ports. They're heading west. Yeah, but you do tend to see with French escapers that they do tend to head back to France. Similarly, we've seen with Dutch going back to the Netherlands and equally Belgians going back to... And Poles, for that yeah. matter. It's not uncommon for those who are from occupied countries to head back to their homeland. Not without its risks, obviously. Of course not. Yeah. Um, but it's not an unusual route mm-hmm. to take. For having reached Osnabrück, they then took a train, a slow workman's train, which took them to Salzbergen, and they had no issue at any of the stations with having to produce papers or being asked to produce papers. However, at Salzbergen, they had to get out of the train and continued on foot in the northwesterly direction. Now, near the frontier, so they're heading towards the Dutch border here, they came across some marshy land and had to hide up for the night. In the morning, they continued walking, and when they were quite near the frontier, they saw a large farm and decided to try and skirt around it. So we're talking about around about 0600 hours in the morning, and as they were making their way across the farm, they heard a noise behind them, and when they turned around, they found a German official pointing a gun at them. It turned out this farm was actually the German headquarters on the frontier, which is unlucky. That is unlucky. So having got away with not having to be checked on papers, they then stumbled directly into German HQ. Yeah, it's not going to end well. No. So they were then taken to a civilian prison nearby, and then the next day sent to a stalag quite close to the frontier at Bathorn. Now, he told the camp authorities that he was a French prisoner of war and had escaped from Lübeck, but he didn't tell them that he was a de Gaullist, which seems like a smart career move. Yes. Good way to keep yourself alive. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, he was only confined to cells for one day. 
He also states there were several prisoners of war in the camp who worked outside on the nearby farms, and from there he found out as much as he could about the surrounding district, and also managed to procure a map of the district, a pair of overalls, and a small compass. Meanwhile, Grandemange also obtained a pair of overalls, so clearly, immediately, they are thinking of escape again. Yeah. yeah. Now, in some ways, the big advantage of having been caught where they were and being held in a stalag camp nearby is, of course, you've already done the travel through Germany. They're now held on a camp which is near the Dutch frontier. Yeah. And this is quite crucially important. So after only about eight days, Muhol went to see the senior French officer in the camp and told him of his intention to escape again. He asked the SFO if he could give him any advice or help, and the senior French officer drew him a plan of the frontier and told him a good place to cross it. He also gave him two addresses where he said he might be able to find help. He also arranged for Grandemange and Mouhot to be put into a working party, and the working party he had in mind was one detailed to load wagons with sand at a place around about 20 kilometres away, and it was the custom for this party to be sent away for a couple of days at a time. This gives him some advantage, because if he can get away relatively early, it might take a little bit longer for his absence to be noticed. So the detachment he's been sent along with left early one morning and took a train, arriving in their destination, the name of which he couldn't quite remember, about half an hour later. So they were immediately set to work, loading up the goods wagons, with the guards stood both in front of them and behind them keeping watch. In front of them was a stretch of sandy ground with some fir trees spaced well apart and behind this was a dense wood. They broke off at noon for lunch and during this period Muhol told Grandemange of his plans. His plan was to go to the lavatory again, which was located behind the fir trees, which is conveniently in the direction of the dense wood. Excellent. Yep, that's handy. And Grandemange was to follow as soon as he could, where they were then to rendezvous and make off into the woods. They each managed to hide a packet of food in their pockets which they had stolen from the provisions given to them for the two days that they were away so that's the other advantage is they've been given enough food to last them two days so they have the advantage of basically being able to steal the food that was intended for them for the following day mm-hmm. this was also supplemented by a supply of chocolate and biscuits which would have come from their red cross parcels the plan worked perfectly and he met Grandemange in the lavatory and they made their way towards the nearby woods. After they'd gone about 100 metres they began to sprint and after around about a kilometre of running they discarded their uniforms, hid them in the trees and were now wearing their overalls underneath. They then continued to walk through the trees and the undergrowth for as far as it would take them. They rested up in the woods until nightfall and then continued to walk the following night and it was the night after that that they managed to cross the frontier. So again this is the advantage of being held so close to the frontier. Absolutely. Because although they're technically still in occupied Europe they're not in Germany. Germany they're now in the Netherlands and so they're more likely to find friendly civilians correct he also states that there was no issue in crossing the frontier and didn't encounter any sentries this time which is handy so on the morning of the third day of their escape they arrived at Versalo where they had no difficulty in finding the house that the senior French officer had told them about but the man who they wanted to see was not in Instead, it was answered by a maid who told them to come back later. This they did, and this time she let them in, gave them something to drink and eat and several sandwiches to take away, but they were then sent away because the man was still not in and the maid was terrified. Absolutely. (laughs) This is not unusual. Yeah, don't blame her at all. (laughs) Not in the slightest. So they then decided to head off in the direction of Henglo, which was where the other address they'd been given was located. So they arrived in Henglo around about 8 o'clock at night the same evening, and while it was too dark for them to attempt to find the address they'd been given, they decided to try and find a barn in which they could spend the night. And he states, While we were searching for this barn, we turned up a side street and ran into the middle of a group of people. We immediately turned away and walked back. A few moments later, we heard someone running behind us. A man asked us who we were. He spoke in Dutch, but I guessed what he was asking and replied Francais. 
He motioned to us to follow him and took us into a house nearby. The people he'd been with followed us in. They appeared to be very friendly and we told them that we were escapers from a German prison camp. Risky. It is, but it sometimes you just have to take the risk. Mm. It's ultimately, if they're recaptured, they're prisoners of war and yeah. will just be returned. It's arguably more risky for the other guys. Yeah, true. The first helper who had followed them left after a little while, saying he would return soon. And he came back about half an hour later with another Frenchman. This Frenchman took their numbers, names and regiments and told them that he would call for them the following evening. Meanwhile, the group of helpers were now giving them food and fitting them up with some civilian clothing that actually looked legitimate rather than converted uniforms, etc. They also gave them 50 Reichmarks, which they said was the only available currency that they had. So the next evening, the Frenchman returned with two bicycles. Yeah! But there's three of them. So... This Frenchman and Grandemanche set off cycling slowly along the road, with Mouhot following some distance behind on foot, and their new helper took them to a house where they rested for some time. This was clearly a location that had sheltered a number of other evaders, because they were clearly... They were set up. Yeah, set up for this. And they were then taken on to another house where they were given a meal and spent the night, and in the morning they were provided with some more civilian clothes. About midday the following morning, the Frenchman took them to a station and bought them three tickets to a town which Muho thought might have been Arnhem. He then took them as far as the station and then bought two more tickets for Maastricht, where he then put them on the train for Maastricht and then left them to it. Before leaving, he gave them a rough sketch map and the complete instruction of a method frequently used by smugglers to cross the Dutch-Belgian frontier. Useful. Very handy information to have. Yes. So they got off the train at Maastricht and walked across country, crossing into Belgium without any issues. So clearly this was helpful information. Now, interestingly, Muhul thinks that they actually crossed the frontier twice, as several times they had to double back on their tracks, and as it was at night, they couldn't see exactly where they were going. Nonetheless, they got onto the main road, and after walking for several kilometres, they saw a large farm. By this time, they were both feeling hungry and tired, and they decided to try and get a meal and a rest. Now, unlike the last time, where it was a farm right on the border, they're sort of fairly safely ensconced into Belgium now. And when they got to the farm, a young boy came to the door and took them in, and while his father seemed very scared and did not want them to stay, in the end he gave them something to eat and let them sleep in one of the barns. The next day the son, who was a student at the university, accompanied them to Liège, where he gave them an address in the town where he said he would possibly obtain help. However, when they got to that address, the occupant was away and they were told that it was useless for them to wait as they couldn't give them any assistance. So from Liège, they went on foot, bus and train to Mons via Charlois and... Interestingly, they say during this time, many of the peasants were willing to give us food and drink and help us in any small way that they could. Which again, does signify the difference between being in occupied Europe versus Germany itself. So by the beginning of April, so they've escaped mid to late March, but by the beginning of April, they've reached Mons. From there, they got an electric bus and headed towards French-Belgian border. Now, before reaching the border, they got off the bus and walked for some way across the fields and went into a cafe. Now, there they spoke to the proprietor and told them that they wanted to get into France. The proprietor told them that while there were German patrols about, they should have no difficulty crossing the French frontier as the officials let evaders pass through without any trouble. He also exchanged 50 Reichmarks that the Dutch group had given them into French francs and gave them some food and something to drink. They then spent the night in the cafe and set off again at dawn. Before leaving, they gave the proprietor a small amount of money. So, as expected from what the cafe owner said, they crossed the French frontier without any trouble. Now, Mouhot says that in 1939 he had made the acquaintance of a family living nearby and they therefore decided to go to this village where their friends took them in and gave them food and money. 
They also gave them some medical attention, which he says was necessary as by this time we were in a bad condition, being considerably cut, scratched and very swollen. And after one day there, Grondemorge decided to leave by himself as his own home was nearby and he said he intended to make his way there. So Muho was now by himself and spent the night with his friends and the next morning left for Paris and arrived in Paris around about 8 o'clock in the evening that day. Now his description of Paris is actually in some ways quite entertaining and his mm. stay there. So he says, in Paris I went to a district of low repute, which Excellent. is where all the best things happen. Yes. To um, find people, obviously, who are going to help him. Exactly, yeah, yes, you know, yes. I mean, I can't think of the other reason why you'd go that way. No, no. Now, his reason, so he claims, for staying in a district of low repute was because he could stay in a hotel where he didn't have to produce any paper. It's actually not a bad Not move. a bad idea. And he was to spend the next eight to ten days staying in hotels of the lowest type, I quote. He also says that during this period I ate very badly as I had no food tickets on me. So he clearly needed to kind of get himself into the bureaucratic system such as it existed at this time. In the meantime, he had managed to make contact with his sister who lived by herself in Paris and he then went to go and live with her. Now while there, he then went to see the mayor of a certain district in Paris and told the mayor that Muho was a demobilised soldier who'd been sent back from Germany as being unsuitable for labour and asked the mayor if he could give him official demob papers. The mayor in turn sent him on to see another official and he was given demobilisation papers and an identity card, food coupons and all the papers necessary for a civilian. Clever. Yeah, very smart. He was also given a certificate saying that he was unfit for further military service. So he's now officially demobbed, giving him the cover to live as a civilian if he so wished. Mm. Of course, he's a French national, national yeah. French citizen, so he's in his home country by this stage. So having stayed with his sister, he let his mother know that he was now staying in Paris with them, that he'd returned. The mother then came to see him and stayed with him until the middle of June. And during this time, the mother, the sister and Muho himself made constant discreet inquiries as to a possible means for him to reach the UK. Now, I do find that quite interesting. As I say, he could have lived quietly in Paris for the rest of the war, maybe done a bit of resistance work. What I would say is, having met a few people from the SAS, they tend to be made of different stuff. Yes. And so I suspect that was probably more of a motivation, was a desire to continue on the fight. So one of his mother's friends gave him an address of someone living in Toulouse, through whom they thought he might be able to get in touch with an organisation, as they describe it. So he therefore left Paris and headed south towards Toulouse, where he then spent two days with this woman. And from here he was then sent on to another address. Now already I'm starting to see a pattern of the parcel yes. delivery system, if you like, yes. that these escape organisations have. Yes. So having managed to make contact with a doctor in Toulouse through this friend of the mother, he in turn was sent to Foix to see an architect. Now we're now heading on towards the Spanish border, we're heading towards the Pyrenees. Yeah. While in Foix, he visited this architect who took him to a small hotel where he stayed the night. And in the morning he went to see him again and was told that he'd be leaving that night to cross the Pyrenees. And about 5pm that evening, he was sent to an arranged rendezvous about 5 kilometres outside of Foix, where he was told someone would be waiting for him. When he got there, he found about 7 or 8 other Frenchmen were also waiting to be taken into Spain, and that night, led by a guide, they started to cross the mountains. They then walked through the Pyrenees for the next three days. After three days, they were just outside Andorra when they were met by another guide who took them to a nearby farm where they were to spend another eight days on the outskirts of Andorra itself. 
by this stage we're at the beginning of August and they were then taking over the frontier into Spain itself. And they crossed the frontier at night without any issue or encountering any officials or patrols. They stopped several times on the way back down the other side of the Pyrenees at small farms close to the road and the last farmer he stayed with it and sent him off in his car directly to Barcelona because by this point he was the only one actually left of the group having all splintered off in different directions. Yeah. He then remained in Barcelona for a couple of weeks and then was taken to Madrid by car and after a week in Madrid he then left by train to Gibraltar arriving there on the 9th of September. He then left Gibraltar by air on the 10th of September and arriving back in the UK on the 11th of September six months after his final escape and 15 months after his initial capture. Yeah, that's not bad going. Not bad at all. And that, of course, puts him back in the UK in 1943. Mm -hmm. I did find a little bit of information, but not anything relating to any further war service. My first check is normally to have a look at the Commonwealth War Graves to see if they survived. He didn't appear in there. I couldn't find anything at all about further war service, although I did find a couple of notes in French that showed that he remained a sergeant. So even if he did go through some more service, he didn't actually progress any further in rank. And that he returned to France post-war, eventually passing away in December of 1985, age 74. But otherwise, I didn't find anything else for the rest of his life, sadly. But, you know, a determined man who... Mm. I suppose, I mean, it's really, it's four escapes, even though, in a way, through some luck, his third escape took him a large amount of the way mm, yeah. <laughs> on his journey. And he just happened to, again, by luck, stay fairly close to escape again from the locality. So a very interesting escape, a very different escape mm-hmm. from ones that we've covered previously. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, clearly a very determined man. And imagine his experience, we jokingly say ski salesman, but I imagine his experience in the mountains probably stood him in good stead in the crossing of the Pyrenees, which is not an easy crossing by any stretch of imagination. No. Especially after, you, after you've just effectively walked through three occupied countries. Over many months. Yeah, over several months. And as I say, members of the SAS tend to be made of different stuff from the average person. And I think that certainly shows and shines through in his escape and his conduct throughout his various escape attempts. Completely. And I think for me, the standout from that escape was in Paris with the D-Mob. That gave him genuine papers and some money and food tokens. And he was obviously a national, so he could fit in with the culture and speak the language so Mm. i think really whilst it was still difficult from there he was on quite a good run from that point yeah absolutely and speaks volumes to his character that he did decide to still return to the uk to continue on this fight presumably well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on apple itunes google podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms or you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.